0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, simply by identifying our sins to God, acknowledging, admitting the sins that we know about. God in His grace instantly forgives us, cleanses us of all sin because Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you that we live in a nation where we have the freedoms that we do to to study your word. We thank you for our forefathers who had the wisdom, foresight to construct a constitution, system of government such as we have. We thank you for their forebears who were willing to Uh, in many cases, suffer martyrdom after the Reformation in order to work out a biblical system, a biblical worldview on which our country was founded. Father, we thank you for those who have served in the military, those who gave their lives, those who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order that we may continue to have our freedoms. Father, we stand in a time when This nation is threatened seriously by many different uh, groups that would seek to do us harm. We have external enemies who hate us bitterly, and they hate us even more because we stand at the side of Israel. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that you would provide the blanket, the umbrella of security that we need in order to continue our support of Israel, in order to be a bulwark of freedom, not only here but in this in this world, that we might continue to be a beacon of light to the cross. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct our president, those who are in positions of power and influence in civil government and in the military, that you would uh, foil the plans of the enemy and that we might have victory in this war against terrorism and against the uh, Islamic fundamentalists. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, strengthen our confidence in your word, our trust in you, and may we not grow weary as we advance in the spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And today is Memorial Day, and I will address that in the second hour. But I want to appreciate, express my appreciation to those who are here who have served in the military, those who are wearing their uniforms. And I'm amazed that there's a couple of you that can still wear your uniforms. What a testimony to the rest of us that couldn't get into anything we were wearing 20 or 30 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29 is the first verse in a paragraph that extends down to verse 34. We'll split it up, and I'll probably just get through this first verse this morning. This is one of those verses that is notoriously difficult, what seminary students and pastors like to call problem passages. That is because the interpretation is difficult. In fact, in, in a number of commentaries that I looked at, people I talked with about this passage in the last couple of weeks, uh, almost to a man they noted that this is probably the most debated passage in all of Scripture. And I don't think anyone fully knows or truly knows or can dogmatically state what this passage means. I mean, in some sense we can, but in another sense we can't because there are certain things referenced in this passage that probably had to do with something that was going on in Corinth in 60 A.D. that we don't know about. And so if you were a Corinthian and you were sitting in Corinth and you were hearing, reading this verse, you knew exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about. But we're 2,000 years away and there are some things that we are missing and so we can't speak to this passage with an extreme amount of dogmatism. However, there are certain things that we can say about this passage and certain things that are significant for us to understand in relation to what Paul is saying. Remember, we have to interpret any passage in the light of its context, both its historical context, but primarily its context in the Scripture. What, do, what are these surrounding verses? And this chapter is a chapter... The most extensive chapter in the New Testament in defense of the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection. And Paul has been laying out a very logical, tight case for the importance and the reality of a physical bodily resurrection. In verses 1 through 11, he laid down the historical foundation that this is based, first of all, on the testimony of Scripture second on the testimony of the apostles and others who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ, and third on the testimony of the apostle Paul himself when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in out of sequence as he was the last of the apostles to be called. And starting in verse 12, Paul builds a logical argument based on the assumption of the opponent, that is, that there is no real resurrection from the dead. Apparently there were those in the Corinthian congregation who believed that, there was, that Christ was raised from the dead, but then they didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection for the rest of us. This ran contrary to Greek thought and Greek culture, as we've studied in the past. And so their assumption was there was no such thing as resurrection. So Paul turns that on its ear and says, well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. Because if resurrection, physical bodily resurrection can't take place, then Christ is not risen. And the conclusion from that is that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, our belief is in vain, our doctrine is in vain. There is no uh, salvation. We are still in our sins Verse 17, verse 20, he reverses the premise to argue that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. He's, after demonstrating the logical fallacy of the assumption that there is no resurrection from the, from the dead, he argues that Christ has risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we studied this passage, this paragraph, the last two Sundays, looking at the different uh, elements of that dogma, that uh, Battalion of the first resurrection. And everything that is said in verses 21 through 28 flows out of this concept of first fruits. It's built on the Jewish feast of first fruits, which was the first day after the Sabbath, the first Sabbath after Passover, which would be the first day of the week or Sunday and first fruits was a festival where the Jews would bring the first of the barley harvest into the temple they would first of all thresh it and they would grind it into flour and then they would bring that to the lord as a and it was a pledge or guarantee that there would be a harvest that's the point of the of the analogy to first fruits first fruits is a guarantee pledge that there will be a harvest because you have that initial harvest, there will be subsequent, a subsequent harvest that year. And in that analogy, what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ was the first, and that guarantees the resurrection of believers in the church age as well as others who participate in the first resurrection the tribulation saints, the two tribulation martyrs halfway through the tribulation. Old Testament saints, and then if there's any death of believers in, in, during the millennial kingdom, then uh, that would be included as well. And he connected that to the angelic conflict, that this ultimately br- uh, brings about the, the return of Christ at the second coming and his rule and then his delivery of the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts all the enemies, when God the Father puts all the enemies under Christ's feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So his argument, we have to put verse twenty-nine in context. The argument again and again is that resurrection is valid, and that there is a. And he's almost arguing in terms of a presupposition. Now, one of the things that's that's I've never spent a lot of time teaching here, and I'm not going to get too distracted right now, in in this whole subject. But the concept of presupposition—this is just a more technical way of talking about assumptions that that people have. That whenever you make an argument, you have certain things that you presuppose to be true. You have certain assumptions. Most of the time, when people get into uh, debates with somebody or you're trying to convince someone of your position, uh, you have to deal with hidden assumptions. Most of the time people don't trot those hidden assumptions out and deal with them. For example, if you're at the door and you have a, you, you're at the house and you hear a knock on the door and you go to the door and there's a couple of young men there in, in their suits and white shirts and ties and they are uh, missionaries from the uh church of the Latter-day Saints, and their Mormons. And they will try to convince you that there is a legitimacy to being baptized for the dead. That's why they have, uh, st- the Mormons are so into genealogy. It's because they're trying to find all their dead relatives so they can be baptized for them in the temple. And, of course, they'll base it on this verse. Now, if you were to sit down with a Mormon and start arguing simply on the basis of the interpretation of this verse, per se, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to butt heads. And that's the same thing is going to happen when you deal with a lot of different types of debates, whether it has to do with politics, whether it has to do with other elements of Christianity. Sometimes all you do is you argue this fact, and that person counters with this. And you counter with that, and they counter with something else. That's because... Both of you are are arguing on the basis of certain hidden assumptions that you're not bringing out on the table and and dealing with. And this is the area of presuppositions. And in the realm of apologetics, which is a very significant and important uh, aspect of theology, based on the Greek word apologia, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A, which is where we get our word apology, and it doesn't mean apology in the Greek. You're not saying, oh, I'm sorry that I believe this about the Bible. It's a word that means, it's a a word that comes out of a legal context, and it means to give a, a logical defense for a position. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, Verse 15, we're told, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that word, to give a defense, some translations uh, translate it, uh, give an answer for the hope that is in you, is this Greek word apologia, which means to make a case for You need to be able to honestly, effectively, cogently, and coherently present your case for Christianity. Now, what happens is that you get into different kinds of apologetic strategy. And on the one hand, you have a body of evidence. Now, this evidence can be historical evidence. For example, Paul uses historical evidence here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he is talking about the historical evidence for uh, the resurrection, that Peter saw the resurrected Christ, John saw the resurrected Christ, James saw the resurrected Christ. He appeared to me. He appeared to 500. See, he's giving historical evidence. In other aspects, you can have rational evidence. Evidence. And in this chapter we see Paul using rational evidence in order to set forth his case for Christianity. He argues that um, on the and uses logic in verses 12 through 19 when he deals with their assumption that there is no resurrection from the dead. So you have these two categories of evidence. And the real question in apologetics and apologetic strategy is how do you use the evidence? That's the real question. And the way most people want to use evidence, I think, is... is um, is methodologically flawed. Now, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't use it, and that doesn't mean people aren't saved as a result of using a flawed methodology, but it's a flawed methodology. See, let's draw two columns up here on the overhead. On the left column, we're going to represent the divine viewpoint, and on the right, we're going to have human viewpoint. Now, under divine viewpoint, we're going to put the believer over here under human viewpoint, we're going to put the unbeliever. And so you're having a discussion with this unbeliever. You are witnessing to this unbeliever. Now, in most cases, and witnessing is going to vary. How you witness to an unbeliever is going to vary depending on who that unbeliever is. Some people think that there's no basis for ever answering any of their questions. You just give them the gospel and say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and that's it and they just want to repeat it maybe 15 or 20 times and that's a rather superficial approach Uh, there are times when you're going to sit down with somebody and give them the gospel and they're going to instantly respond but there's been preparation and you're not the first person that they heard this from and the Holy Spirit has prepared them so that when you come along and you give them the gospel they're ready to hear that There are other times that you're going to deal with some unbelievers who are going to have a lot of questions. They've heard all kinds of charges against Christianity. They've watched a lot of these shows on uh, Discovery Channel or A&E or the History Channel that have cast aspersions on on the gospel. They've read books like The Da Vinci Code. Whatever it is, they've got questions about uh, historical validity, let's say, of Christianity. Didn't they just... Kind of, didn't Constantine come along and, and uh, invent the canon of Scripture? Didn't he, they just impose the deity of Christ on Jesus at the uh, Council of Nicaea, other things of, of that nature? You'll also have challenges to thought in terms of, uh, uh, well, how do you really know that Christianity is true? And so they'll argue on the basis of of reason. They'll have a number of objections. And and it's not that that unbeliever may not be positive. It's just that perhaps they are the kind of person that says, well, I'll I'll accept this, but I don't want to put my brain in neutral and be just some kind of mindless zombie who just uh, has to have some sort of, as Marx put it, uh, religious opium to make it through life. They, They want to... Uh, honestly understand Christianity, and if it hangs together, they want to believe it. And sometimes when they're asking these questions, they may appear to us to be hostile, and so we have to, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15, we have to answer them with gentleness and humility. We have to be patient and explain the gospel maybe many times, maybe answer their questions a number of times, but it's how we go about this. Because, see, an unbeliever can phrase a question in such a way that shapes the direction of the discussion in a negative direction. We've talked about this in the past. You know, you can ask a question that uh, presupposes certain things that are just wrong. You don't want to grant their assumptions. That's what I'm talking about in terms of of presuppositions. You don't want to grant their assumptions. If you say, uh, for example, you ask the question, uh, have you quit beating your wife lately? There's a hidden presupposition there. That is that you, you've been beating your wife. And no matter how you answer that question, you're in trouble. If you say, yes, I quit, then that you're admitting that you did. If you say, no, I haven't, then you're admitting you're going, you're, you're continuing to. But by answering the question at all, you're um, giving validity to the, to the presupposition to that question. Now, in apologetics, what happens often is a believer will, will try to go to historical or logical evidence as the ultimate uh, arb- arbiter of truth. In other words, here you have divine viewpoint, and over here on the right human viewpoint, and we have this assumption that somewhere in the middle there is an area of neutral truth that both the Human viewpoint-based thinking of the unbeliever and the divine viewpoint thinking of the believer can appeal. For example, you can think in terms of historical fact, such as the resurrection. A lot of folks think, if you can prove the tomb was empty and Christ was raised from the dead, you've made your case. That's not true. See, unbelief, over here in the category of the human viewpoint unbeliever, Unbelief is going to reinterpret that data. Just because you prove that the tomb was empty, and if you were able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt for this individual that Christ uh, was raised from the dead, it, his controlling unbelief presupposition would say, "Hmm, that's an interesting aberration in history, isn't it?" See, so you can think of it this way: you have a have a man who believes that that uh, uh, that he's dead, he 's got a mental problem, he believes he's really dead, and so he goes to a psychiatrist, and so a psychiatrist works with him for weeks, months, perhaps years to convince him that um, and decides to t- approach the strategy to prove that that uh, dead men don't bleed, so as part of his strategy, he takes this guy around to uh, hundreds of morgues around the country and they uh, uh, stab or poke or prick all these dead bodies and no dead bodies ble- bleed. And then they go around to a lot of living people and they he pokes or punches them and they bleed. And so he convinces the patient after a while that that's right, dead men don't bleed. And then he pulls out a pin and he sticks the guy in the arm and he starts to bleed and the patient looks down and says, how about that? Dead men bleed after all. (laughs) You see, presuppositions can control the argument. So where you have to do, and as a seminary professor of mine pointed out years ago, and I thought it was a blinding flash of the obvious at the time, one of those things I'd never thought about. If you grant a person's presuppositions, those basic controlling assumptions, If you grant that, then whatever they build, if what they construct on that is logically consistent with the presupposition, then you're never going to tear down their argument unless you attack the foundation. And that's the strategy that Paul is using here in 1 Corinthians chapter Fifteen. Even when he uses evidence, he's not using evidence in this sort of neutral appeal to evidence. Remember his first, and I emphasize this at the time, without going into uh, this discussion on presuppositions. The first evidence that he gave for the resurrection of Christ was what? Was it Peter? Was it Cephas? Was it the 500? Was it John? Was that his? No. What was his first evidence? It was the Scripture. See, our presupposition is that the Scripture is true. Now, how do you prove that the Scripture is true? You don't. See, to prove that the Scripture is true, you, have to, you would have to appeal to a higher authority. What's a higher authority than the Word of God? Is, lo, is logic a higher authority than the Word of God? No. Well, see, this is the way most people will approach their argumentation. And that is why, if you go back to how I've taught many, many times, you have your different approaches to uh, knowledge. That ultimate truth can be found either through empiricism or rationalism or mysticism. That's in terms of human viewpoint thought. And those systems all construct reality on the basis of an assumption that logic can get you to truth but their starting point is human independence in terms of how they interpret the data, either the rational data or the empirical data. What the Bible teaches is not that logic or experience is inherently wrong. See, Paul uses empiricism in a correct way here, but he uses it under the authority of Scripture. His logic is under the authority of Scripture. Because the Scriptures recognize you can't go to an authority higher than God to, to validate God. God is the source of what is true and what is right. So His Word is self-authenticating. In other words, when you hear it, you know it's true. When the unbeliever sees the evidence of God, he knows it's true. For example, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks within the same same framework. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. See, they know it's true. There's no atheist out there who doesn't or who hasn't, at some level, been confronted with the truth of the Word of God, and he knows it's true. But then he suppresses it in negative volition. He suppresses it in unrighteousness. God doesn't have to prove he exists. The unbeliever already knows he exists. When the unbeliever hears the voice of God in the Word of God, he knows it's true. He may... He he then suppresses it. He's constructed intricate, logical, and empirical systems to try to suppress the reality of the existence of God. And in our apologetics or in our explanation of the gospel, what we have to do is show that that his foundation is flawed and faulty. He can't live within the framework of his own foundation. And this is exactly how Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 14. Notice he, he says, he's pointing out to these uh, this group that doesn't believe in resurrection that they can't operate on the basis of their assumption. Their assumption is there's no resurrection of the dead. But they want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul points out you can't believe that. It it's, doesn't fit. You can't argue that there is no resurrection from the dead and then argue that Christ did rise physically and bodily from the dead. It's logically inconsistent. And he is argue, shows that it is consistent with the Scriptures that Christ is risen from the dead because this conquers death and it ultimately brings all creation back into the authority of God. That was the structure of his argument down through to the end of verse 28. So when he comes to verse 29, what he is dealing with here is apparently another reality in Corinth. That there were those, and we're not sure who those are. I want you to notice the verse says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are are they baptized for them? And what we have here is, Two rhetorical questions begins with a contrast, otherwise, or we might say, for or because. So he's offering another reason. And I think that what we have here is he's just offering another reason why they can't live, there, there can't be a consistent application or consistent lifestyle based on this assumption or that is in terms of his opponents, they can't live consistently on the assumption that there's no resurrection from the dead because there's too many logical inconsistencies. And this is, um, if we make application of that to a witnessing situation, well, you need to be subtle enough to understand in reading people, and this just comes with time. It's not the kind of thing you go out and you say, oh, gosh, I just heard this, I'm going to start doing it. Uh, Trust me, it takes years to develop the... The, the understanding and the skill and knowing people to be able to do this kind of thing and to be able to do it well, because most of us have a tendency to react a little bit and to polarize the argument a little bit. And what we have to develop is a way in which, like Paul here, just is is raising questions. And what these questions do is to point out to the unbeliever that, oh, you believe that... Um, uh, you believe this particular thing, uh, and you believe that there, there's no God. And, the, you know, for example, in postmodernism, you believe there are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute? Is that a universal? Oh, well, we have one universal. Okay, well, we can agree on that. Well, if they believe there's not a uni- there are no universals, that's universal. You can point out the flaw in their logic. And can they live on the basis of that? Uh, if you're witnessing to an agnostic and the agnostic says, well, I don't think you can know for sure anything. Well, do you know that for sure? Uh, if they say, yeah, I, I, I'm certain we can't know anything for sure. Well, you've got an inherent. Uh, you, 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 what you're doing is you're pointing out the flaws in their position. It's like in the problem of evil. We've talked about this many times. You'll, you'll sit down with somebody and they'll say, I have a real problem with a loving God who allows war or terrorism or disease or all these horrible things to take place in history. Okay? Instead of just jumping in there right away and giving your answer, say, well, how do you explain it? See, they can't. No unbeliever on the basis of the assumptions of unbelief can come up with a legitimate cogent answer for evil they just don't like the fact that a, they just don't have a broad enough perspective to allow for a for the existence of a loving god who controls evil but before you can get there he may not even be ready to listen you have to point out that he has no answer he has to live with an incredible tension in his own life when it comes to the existence of evil. He can't explain it. He has to either think that, well, this is just normal. Well, if it's normal and you believe in evolution, which someone of this nature usually does, if it's normal and you believe in evolution, then what you're basically saying is that there's no real, real basis for saying that there's a distinction between good and evil. It's just normal. If death and suffering are all the means to advance from from lower life forms to higher life forms, and we ought to be glad there's suffering and warfare and famine because that's the struggle for existence in which the survival of the fittest operates. So why are you so upset that you have uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying off from famine in places in Africa? Why are you so upset over... Uh, the holocaust why are you so upset over these events that you term evil they're just the means of advancing us to the next stage you're not consistent in other words you be gentle with them don't don't just try to beat them over the head and create a an an antagonism and so this is the approach that paul is taking here I believe, and he is not specifically addressing the validity or the invalidity of this practice of being baptized for the dead. But before we get there, we have to take some time to uh, take a few moments to exegete the passage to make sure we understand exactly what is being said here. We have a contrast, or what I believe is a causal use, of the uh, conjunction epe. And so Paul here is offering a re- another reason for baptism based on the inconsistencies of their own practices. So he says, Because what or for? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? And the word do is the Greek verb poieo. It's a future active indicative third person plural. Simply means to to do, to make or to manufacture, and here it has the sense of what significance is it? Why is it, why, what, what should they continue to do? If there, in other words, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why would they continue this practice? This is what Paul is pointing out. The very practice of, of being baptized for the dead presupposes some value. So if it doesn't have any, I mean, some value in terms of resurrection, so if it doesn't have any value in terms of resurrection, he's saying, what's its significance? What is the significance for those who are being baptized for the dead? And that phrase, who are baptized, is an articular participle. That means it's going to be used as a, as a substantive. It's referring to a group of people. It's the subject of the clause. Those who are baptized. It's a present passive participle. Passive voice indicates they receive the action of baptism. Uh, the pre- present tense indicates that it is contemporaneous with the action of the, uh, of the main verb to do. And the word baptize, as we'll see, simply means to dip, plunge, or immerse. And it signifies identification. Now, when we look at this word, we have to ask or answer a question. Is Paul using baptizo here in the technical sense of the Christian act of baptism, believer's baptism, number one? number Or number two, is he using it in its more generic sense of some sort of ritual washing? The words used that way in some passages in the New Testament referring to washings, uh, that took place, ritual washings that took place under Old Testament law. Is he using it that way or could it just be that there's some sort of ritual washing going on related to resurrection or future life in Greek culture? We don't know. We can't answer that. There's no historical information. We don't know of any groups in Corinth, b- believers or unbelievers, who were practicing a baptism for the dead. So his, historically, we're we're sh- uh, shortchanged here. We don't have any information we can go to, and I think for that reason, it's not as important to understand what the historical situation was as to understand the thrust of Paul's particular argument. The concept of being baptized for the dead <clears throat> is based on the fact is. The the confusion is uh, brought out even more by the fact that what we have here in in terms of the preposition for the dead is the Greek preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, plus the genitive. This is the same preposition that we have when we talk about the fact that Christ died for you. Christ died for you, you have huper plus the genitive plural of the second person uh, pronoun. And in that construction, it has the concept, uh, it has the idea of substitution. There are two prepositions in the Hebrew that have the idea of uh, of substitution. There's huper and the preposition anti, A-N-T-I. They both have the idea of substitution. <clears throat> but pair has other ideas. It can indicate a causal idea in the sense of on account of or because of. It can also have the idea of something that is over something. Now when we look at this passage, what's interesting is that uh, over 200 interpretations have been cataloged on this particular phrase. Now, I did not work my way through all 200 interpretations. There are only two or three interpretations that have any any real sense of validity. The, the, there is a wrong interpretation, though, to this passage, and that is any inference that this passage is talking about baptismal, Regeneration. Now, what is baptismal regeneration? Baptismal regeneration simply teaches that you have to be baptized in order to be regenerated or saved. In other words, faith alone is not necessary. What is truly efficacious in salvation is the ritual of water baptism. Now, this is evident in, for example, the teaching of the Church of Christ, that you have to go through water baptism to be saved. If you just trust in Christ alone, you're not saved. You have to be baptized. Now, I don't know of any Baptist that believes in baptismal regeneration. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of any. Uh, You have different kinds of Baptists. Some Baptists think that you have to be baptized in their church before you can be a member of the church. So I've known some Baptists who've been baptized in two or three different churches just to maintain membership there. But believer's baptism is immersion as a sign or a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what takes place in positional truth. It is not Necessary, and they, the early church never understood that baptism was necessary in order to be saved. And we'll look at some passages on this in just a minute. But what undergirds the problem in this passage is this, or the false view, is that this is somehow t- teaching baptismal regeneration. And in this passage, it's talking about vicarious baptism. By by curious, we mean substitutionary baptism. That you can be baptized for someone else. And in this case, it's someone who has died prior to going through the ritual of baptism. And so the idea is that, once again, that it is the act of baptism itself that saves. So this comes out in the cultic teaching of the Mormon church that you can just be baptized for a dead person and then they'll be saved. It has nothing to do with their volition at all. You can just be baptized for somebody else. Now this concept is completely erroneous. So we can exclude a certain number of interpretations just based on what Scripture teaches. First of all, nowhere in the Bible do we have a reference to baptism on behalf of the dead to vicarious baptism for the dead. There's no passage, no other passage in Scripture that confirms or affirms baptism on behalf of the dead. Second, baptism for the salvation of the dead has no historical attestation in the early church. There's no record of this either in the early church or in secular culture. So if you're supposed to be baptized for the dead so they can be saved, then this is the only place that there's even a hint or suggestion of that. And third, if you are saved through baptism, this is counter to everything that's taught in the Scripture. So if that's what Paul is affirming here, then it contradicts everything else that Paul says in his writings. So if we've set this up on, at a flowchart, And we were to ask the question, is this talking about a baptismal regeneration? uh, If we say, yes, it is, then we have no record and it it is uh, contrary to Paul's thought. Therefore, we have to go to the No. There's no basis for saying that this teaches baptismal regeneration or vicarious substitution. So any of the interpretive options that are based on baptismal regeneration are going to be excluded. So obviously it's not talking about baptismal regeneration. It's not talking about being vicariously baptized for the dead. So what is the passage talking about? Well, we have two... Two rhetorical questions here. First of all, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Now, there's three, three views that I think hold some, some um, validity, and I just want to go through those briefly, and then we will, um, I'll tell you the one I like the best. The first view is that this is um, a baptism which is a witness for those who died before being baptized. In other words, this position says that that you have someone who becomes a believer, but they're never baptized. In the early church, (coughs) it was assumed or presumed that if you were a believer, you were baptized. You would be immersed uh, (coughs) fairly quickly after your profession of faith, and it was a means of teaching Positional truth. Positional truth is an extremely abstract doctrine. I I can tell you lots of believers have been sitting in the pew for a long time and they don't understand positional truth. What took place at the instant of salvation in terms of God providing at least 40 things for you at the instant of salvation that are yours forever? Your eternal security is based on uh, positional truth, your identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection so that at the instant of salvation you are given new life in Christ. And this is the argument for as the foundation for the Christian life in Romans chapter six verses three through five now, so in the early church, they just presumed somebody would get baptized. But what happens if they became a believer and died before they were baptized? So in this interpretation, the idea was that there was a, there were people who would get baptized for those who had died so that they would give a public testimony for that person even though they had uh, they, they died but because they had died before they could be uh, they could have their own testimony and that's possible but I don't think it's it's the strongest another view is to take the word who pair to mean over and above in other words what would those do who are baptized over and above the dead and this was uh, this view states that in the early church there were those who were martyred before they were baptized, and so it's it 's similar to the other view they would go out and get baptized over their grave as a as a witness. The problem is in sixty a d there were no persecutions of the church yet, so you don 't have any martyrs, so this wouldn't make sense and the fifth view is that uh, or the uh, I, 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 the third view is that This is called the replacement view, and it looks at the church like an army. And what happens is you've got some folks who die, some believers have died, and, and you know they're going to be resurrected in heaven. The church needs to go on, continue its mission of witnessing and expansion. And so when you have certain... Uh, believers die, and as it were, they're, they're no longer in the active army. You need to replace them with new converts. And in this sense, the word baptism represents the whole, the, everything involved in conversion from faith alone and Christ alone to ultimate, uh, immersion. And this is a view that is taken by a, a lot of different, uh, conservatives, a lot of different people. And it's, it's called the replacement view that, that all that Paul is saying is that what will you do if you're being baptized? That is, if you're replacing dead, dead Christians. I mean, if, why keep going on with this thing called Christianity if there's no resurrection? That's just fruitless. That would be that interpretation. Another interpretation, which I like a little better and I think is probably my favorite this week. What will they do who are baptized on account of the dead? Now, there's a strong argument for taking "who pair" meaning on account of or because of the dead, and this view states that you, you have a have a, and this is true for, in some of our lives. We have someone who has witnessed to us perhaps for years, and now they die, and when they die, we realize perhaps at their funeral that what they have said all along is true, and this person, uh, a parent. A friend, a loved one, has witnessed to us all along about the fact that Christ has died on the cross for our sins, so now, on account of or because of their witness, which and at the time of their death, we become a believer on account of their witness, because of their believer, and so we become baptized because of their witness in effect, and because we want to be reunited with them in resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, why in the world would we want to be baptized? Why would we want to even become a believer if there's no future resurrection? And so this interprets the, the baptism for the dead Is otherwise, what will they do who got saved because of the witness of a dead person? If the dead aren't raised at all, why do they even become a believer? There's no future hope. There's no future resurrection. Now, those last two views are among the predominant. Then there's another view, and that is that the those, throughout Corinthians, Paul talks about the we and the you, we being apostles or we being the body of Christ and you being Corinthians and some of the things that you're doing that are wrong. But here he uses the the, the um, uh, a, a relative participle here to indicate those those who are baptized. And and the implication is that these are people outside the church. And so another interpret possible interpretation is that there's a group of of non-Christians, or this is some pagan practice that was taking place in Corinth that had influenced practice in the church. Now, we've seen that over and over again in Corinth where they've let pagan practices influence what they did in the church. And so... Uh, Paul is simply saying, look, there's this group out there who've influenced you to get baptized for the dead, and why do it if there's no resurrection? Why are you, and he's, he doesn't judge the situation at all. He doesn't challenge it. He's just simply saying, why in the world would you go through this practice for the dead if there wasn't a hope of resurrection? And that ultimately is really the argument in, in the passage. Whatever the situ, historical situation is, what Paul recognizes is that there is some group of people who, who are being baptized either because of the witness of, of uh, believers who were close to them, who were loved by them, and they were, were looking forward to being reunited with them in resurrection, or because it was a simple practice that had something related to a future life, no matter what the circumstances were, Paul is recognizing that they were somebody was doing something in the hope of being reunited with dead people, those who had already died. And that presupposes resurrection. And so this is uh, Paul's use of a presuppositional apologetic here. He is saying, look, you've got this practice going on, whatever it was, The practice itself presupposes resurrection, so why do it unless there is a resurrection? So it's a somewhat uh, subtle argument. He says if the dead aren't raised at all, that is your assumption that there is no resurrection from the dead, then why is this practice being uh, implemented in the church? Now... Before we go on any further, I want to talk a little bit about baptism. And I want to go back to the question of baptismal regeneration. When Often when you talk with certain groups of people, they don't understand that there are different categories of baptism in the Scripture. In fact, there are eight baptisms. So you may have been taught that there were seven. Actually, there are eight baptisms in the Scripture. The first three baptisms are... Uh, Ritual baptisms. There's two categories. There's ritual baptisms and there's water baptism. Before we get any further, let's just get our definition of baptism. It's from the Greek word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, from the root bapto, B-A-P-T-O, meaning to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. That's what it means. See, we have to separate the meaning from what it signifies. If you look it up in a dictionary, the word means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. What happened in the early church was that somewhere along the line, they quit immersing and they started sprinkling. And when they started sprinkling, that uh, that changed the meaning. Then, then you have the identification with the state and the church that went through the Middle Ages. By the time you got to the Reformation, you've got this state-church thing going, where entry into your citizenship in the state was identical to your becoming a member of the church. And how did you become a member of the church, the universal church? By baptism, infant baptism, and you were sprinkled. So that also makes you a citizen of the country. So if you challenge the validity of infant baptism... You were challenging a political structure. You were, you were making a political statement that was viewed as treasonous. That's why there was such hostility during the Reformation to the folks who were called Anabaptist. Anna meaning again. Because at that point they said, you, you gotta be baptized again. And baptism, uh, infant baptism was no testimony at all. Baptism is for believers only. And so you have to be immersed because you're teaching Positional truth. It doesn't have anything to do with becoming saved. But it is a post-salvation ritual that is designed to teach you the principle of positional truth. Now, there's a lot of confusion over that, and it's not always taught that clearly, but that was the significance of it. So baptism has a meaning to dip, plunge, or immerse. When they started translating the Bible into English, They didn't want to get wrapped up into the debate over the type of baptism, so they took the coward's way out and they just transliterated the word. So our English word baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word. It's not a translation. That way you don't get into an argument. You just use the Greek word and confuse everybody. So its meaning is to dip, plunge, or to immerse, but its significance was identification. It identified a person with a new, uh, new situation. For example, in the ancient world, uh, new recruits in the Spartan army uh, would dip their spears into a bucket of pig's blood before they went into battle. And that, that identification of the spear with blood was to initiate it into warfare. It was a sign that they were ready to go to war. So this is the significance of baptism is it's an initiation, an identification with something. So we have three ritual baptisms which are all water baptisms. The first is the baptism of John the Baptist. And this was a baptism involving repentance for the nation Israel because the kingdom of God was at hand. And they were to change their mind about the Messiah. When Jesus came along and he was baptized by John, he wasn't baptized with John's baptism because Jesus was did not need to repent of anything. He was the Messiah. So the second ritual baptism is the baptism of Jesus, Matthew three thirteen through 17 the baptism of John the Baptist is Matthew 3, 1 through 11. The baptism of, of Jesus is Matthew three thirteen to 17. And then the third ritual baptism is believer's baptism, where the believer is immersed in water, which is a sign of death, and when he's brought out of the water, that is a sign of his resurrection to new life in Christ. And it is a picture of the fact that at salvation, the believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, And resurrection. So these are the three ritual water baptisms. But there are five real baptisms. There are five real baptisms, and these real baptisms are all dry. Five real baptisms, and they're all dry. The first is the one I want to focus on, and that's the baptism of Noah. This is the one that some people don't include in their list of baptisms because you have to properly exegete the Greek text or you're in trouble. In 1 Peter 3.20, uh, Peter says, "...who once were disobedient, that is, the angels, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Water is involved, but the people who got wet died. Okay, so they weren't the ones who got baptized. So when you talk to some Baptists, every time you see the word baptism, somebody's getting wet. And then in verse 21, it begins with the phrase, corresponding to that, that is to the, the ark, uh, the situation with Noah's ark, baptism now saves you. Now we have to understand that word corresponding. This is the Greek word antitupas. And he's saying analogous to that. So there is a, what we have is in the Old Testament is there is an identification with Noah's three sons and their wives, and Noah's wife are all identified with Noah. And they're saved. They're delivered through that judgment. So Peter says analogous to that, baptism now saves you. Now, you have two things in Scripture. We studied this under typology. You have a type, which is a an example or a shadow image, and you have what it represents, the antitype. Now, the antitype, which is that word corresponding to, the baptism that now saves you is the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you're placed in union with Christ. So the type, which is going to... Teach something, the shadow image that teaches something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to be Noah's Ark. To have an antitype, you have to have a type. And so it doesn't come right out and say they were baptized by Noah, but they're saying the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an antitype of Noah. So the implication is Noah's Ark has to be a type of baptism. And what we see there is that their identification with Noah brought about their salvation. Now it's further defined, as saying corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And then to make sure you understand that he's not talking about water baptism, Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So he's not talking about water baptism. That doesn't save you. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's faith alone in Christ alone, not water baptism that saves you. See, this is another passage that the people who believe in uh, baptismal regeneration will go to. Then you have, as your second uh, real baptism or dry baptism, is the baptism of Moses. So you have the baptism of Noah, the baptism of Moses. Then you have the uh, third is the baptism of fire where all unbelievers uh, are, who, sur- who uh, survive the tribulation are judged. This is mentioned in Matthew 3:11 and 12. The fourth real baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the fifth is the, the, the baptism of Christ's death. The baptism of Christ's death. So those are your five real, real baptisms. Now, there's one other passage that folks go to to try to prove that you have to be baptized to be saved, and that's in Acts 2.38. And this is in Peter's, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and in the English, it looks like you need to be baptized. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit and it looks like in order to be forgiven of your sins you have to be baptized you have to repent and be baptized the key here is understanding the greek the first command repent is an aorist active imperative second person plural y'all repent the word baptized is notice it's an aorist uh, passive imperative but it's a third person singular now the word of you is also plural now to put this together what peter is saying is repent he's talking to the whole group repent and that was the message to change as a jew to change your mind about who jesus was repent does not mean to feel sorry for your sins it doesn't mean to to um, have remorse it means to change your thinking He says, change your thinking about Jesus Christ, all of you. It's a command to everyone. It's a broad-based general command, general offer of salvation. And then he says, each of you, now he's individualizing it. Those who have repented, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a parenthesis. And then he says, uh, repent. And then, see, the forgiveness of your sins, that's plural. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. So repent. Your sins and receive is all plural. He's talking to the group. And then each of you be baptized. He's talking to those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's, uh, let me run through that. If you wanted to, to mark up your Bible so you'd understand, see how to understand it, put, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, put that in parentheses. He's actually saying repent for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the correct way to translate that particular verse. It is not talking about uh, baptismal regeneration. So why is it that, uh, so what is Paul saying in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15? He is not validating a position of vicarious baptism for the dead he is simply saying that you've got this practice whatever it might have been and the fact that you do it shows that you you have a presupposition that there's resurrection why even do that unless there is resurrection from the dead so he is arguing once again from what they're practicing that they have an inherent belief in a future resurrection resurrection of Jesus Christ, was the seal of God's approval on His death on the cross. His death on the cross provided the salvation for us. It was when He died spiritually on the cross that He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word uh, this morning, to have a, a, an understanding of... of. Uh, this passage, I have an understanding of the importance of, of our salvation, that it's faith alone in Christ alone. We don't do anything or add anything to it, for that destroys the efficacy of, of our faith. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that they might take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is to put your faith in Jesus Christ to believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and that by simply trusting in Him, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.